It's Monday, March 11th, 2019. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 199 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us for another conversation between myself and uh, a fellow musician. Today, that musician is guitarist, improviser, author, Alan Licht. Before we get into it, next week, March 18th, marks 200 episodes of the 5049 podcast. That is a lot of talk. It, uh, it kind of crept up on me. As always, the most recent 100 episodes of the podcast will always be available and free in iTunes, on the website, um, and everywhere else that you get podcasts. If you want access to the backlog, which will now be a nice 100 episodes, the entire archive, become a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Sign up, and uh, I'll, I'll give you immediate access to those 100 episodes. That's a, There's a lot of good stuff in there, and if you want to hear those, that's how you do it. As I mentioned last week, uh, for the 200th episode, treating it like any other episode. Uh, so, you know, don't expect Kanye to come on. Uh, you know, like, I thought about it. Like, okay, maybe I should have like, a really big guest on. But, like, who? Like, what in this world of music is a big guest? Mike Patton? I don't know. Would that be one? I emailed him. Uh, he said, no, thanks. But, like I said, I you know, in my life, in my experience, um, I am just sickened by by creative hierarchy and and gatekeeping and all that shit. And um, I, I treat every episode of the show exactly the same. So next week's a good one. Just don't expect, uh, like I said, Kanye or or Kendrick Lamar or anyone like that to roll through. It's going to be uh, just me and a friend. If you're enjoying this show but uh, can't commit to Patreon, please. Rate, review, and subscribe to it in iTunes. That's hugely helpful. And uh, honestly, I like seeing the reviews. You know, that's that's one special thing I'll do next week is um, I'm going to read uh, some some letters and some emails that I've gotten over the years. I, that stuff always makes me happy. All right, today on the show, Alan Licht. Do you guys know Alan? He's been around a long time. He's originally from New Jersey. Started playing guitar as a, as a teenager He's been in New York since uh, late 80s, early 90s, collaborating with a lot of people. Lauren Mezzacane Connors, Thurston Moore and Lee Ronaldo, Jim O'Rourke, Jandek, you dig. Through his own work and collaboration with others, Alan has become a really important part of the New York underground. In addition to his music, in addition to his guitar playing, He's done and continues uh, to do a tremendous amount of writing, um, notably for The Wire. He's a frequent contributor, uh, not reviewing records, but, you know, doing invisible jukebox with other musicians, profiling musicians, um, much more uh, an archivist uh, in that way than, than a music critic. He's not a critic. He's someone who has been documenting, uh, you know, the lives and work of a lot of different people over the years. He's published uh, a couple of books. An Emotional Memoir of Martha Quinn, uh, Alan Documenting the Decline of Rock Music. He put out another book in 2007, Sound Art, Beyond Music Between Categories. He's busy. 
Uh, he, he's done a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, beyond the music, beyond the writing, for many years, he was in charge of uh, booking shows at Tonic, the now legendary Tonic, 1998 to 2007, RIP. Uh, he's, he's, he's done a lot. He's seen a lot. He's talked to a lot of people. And, uh, it, you know, it's for these reasons I was curious and interested uh, to have Alan on the show. And I enjoyed today's conversation quite a lot. Alan is a knowledgeable guy, um, and, and I enjoyed being able to have this conversation. If you want to find out uh, more about Alan, and I suggest that you do, go to alanlicht.tumblr.com. alanlicht.tumblr.com. He's got a pretty uh, incredible record out uh, from the last couple of years it's called Currents. Uh, you'll hear uh, a bit of it in just a second, but definitely check him out. Go to the 5049 website, 5049records.com. Consider the Patreon. Uh, check out some past episodes. Pick up a CD or a T-shirt if that's what you're into. And that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Alan Licht. I, th- I think I respect like, like my my own privacy and my own sense of like thing. I I just I, I'm not comfortable with that many people coming and going around me. No, you know, unless I had a house and I had a, like a spare room with a separate entrance. Even then, I, it's not something. Yeah. Uh, but you are you from New York originally? New Jersey. Where? Are we recording? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh. Originally Elizabeth, and okay. then until I was four, and then Short Hills. Short Hills is where's that? Short Hills is thirty or forty minutes due west of here. Okay, so if you know like where, uh, well, it's you know it's like fifteen or twenty minutes down the road. Yeah, from Newark. Yeah, yeah if yeah. you know where uh, Maplewood uh-huh. or uh, Morristown. It's yeah, Morristown. Un- yeah, I was going to say Union, but Livingston. Chris Christie's hometown. He's a great man. <laughs> I was actually, bo- technically, I was born in Livingston. Really? Because the hospital was in uh, Livingston. It's just over the border between Short Hills and Livingston. Are, are your parents still out there? My mom is. She's in Springfield, but again, okay. it's again, it's just over the border of Milburn, which, like, Short Hills is part of Milburn Town. Is he, is Chris Christie, do you get the impression that he's as reviled in Jersey as he is everywhere else? I would think he would be more reviled in yeah. New Jersey because of the whole... The, the bridge thing? The bridge thing, yeah. I just, yeah, I mean, he, like, has made, like, like similar to this idiot that's in office, like, his his position, I mean, he's more, I think, uh, experienced and articulate in some of his ideas, but he's kind of made this reputation of being this brash, just sort of, like, disgusting down-home dude, and I, I couldn't tell if that was, like, a sense of pride or <laughs> embarrassment. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, in Hurricane Sandy, I think he kind of came off really well and, yeah. and i think his i think his popularity kind of rose considerably because of that and then you know it's like he, he squandered it with yeah with everything else and now he's sort of i mean sort of like giuliani right well or, yeah. you know like you know he was you know he, again he kind of rose to the occasion on 9-11 then every other thing about him yeah but prior horrible. to 9-11 i mean he was pretty i mean giuliani specific, like was really despised by yeah. by a lot of people most people in new york who are you know interested in the more creative and special yeah, of aspects course. of it but you know yeah. yeah he went from being despised to being like 
you know, he got like the grace period and then he went back to being despised. Yeah. Did um are your parent your both your parents are from Jersey? My dad was from the hillside. Yeah. Uh and what year were you born? Sixty eight. So like not long after the race rights. If you say so. <laughs> I guess. I mean I mean uh yeah, I mean my yeah. I mean my my dad was sort of taking care of his parents who were still in uh-huh. Hillside and that's kind of why we were in Elizabeth. Okay. But they were they were pretty much gone when I was still very young, so then it became a question of um moving somewhere else. I mean, if they were if they were going to put me in um private school, I think we could have stayed in Elizabeth actually because there was a private school right in Elizabeth to go to and they they didn't want to do that. So then it became and my dad I think did not was not interested in living in the city even though he worked in the city. And my mom had lived in the city. Yeah. So then it became a question of finding uh another town in Jersey to go to and my parents already had a couple of friends mm-hmm. in Short Hills and um and the school system was had a good reputation. So mm-hmm. I think that pretty much sealed the deal. But uh growing up for you, New York was the city, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You come in a lot? Uh yeah. Fairly often. My mom liked to come in because I think she missed it somewhat. Really? So yeah, we would we would go to museums and yeah. things like that. Were you spending did you uh like how early on were you accessing the Lower East Side, the East Village? Uh well, not that early. I, you know, there might have been a trip to the Lower East Side to see more some touristy thing about mm-hmm. you know, well there was a tenant museum sure. or something like that. But otherwise it was more midtown or uptown or mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't until I was, you know, early teens that I kind of discovered the West Village first and then later the East Village. And what was the entry point to the West Village? Um, well, you know, we're going on the PATH train, so it's 9th Street. But I, I, I guess I'm asking more <laughs> culturally. I mean, yeah, I know, but it's, I'm trying to think what yeah. was around, you know, it was like whatever record stores were around there, Um uh, you know, I we I went to the Quad Cinema to see the punk rock documentary "Decline of Western Civilization." Yeah. I think when it came out, uh, accompanied by my mother, who was completely horrified <laughs> by what she saw. I mean, I was also, but but in a different way. I was also excited by it. But the fact that she went with you shows, you know, support. Yeah, I mean, I was too young to to go into the city on my own. I think at that point, but. Uh, but did you have that relationship with your parents, where like you would share the stuff that you were excited about and? kind of gauge their uh, disgust? Uh, my mom was probably a little more receptive to that. My dad wasn't My dad wasn't particularly interested in the arts. I mean, he enjoyed watching movies or mm-hmm. whatever, but, you know, he didn't really have a, you know, his, his relationship to music was that he would, you know, sometimes turn on an easy listening station, then get in his lazy boy, stretch out, close his eyes, and, and promptly take a nap <laughs> and so then i realized that i could you know because i you know whatever spare time i had i really liked to listen to music so i realized that he was a deep enough sleeper that i could actually go in and listen to because the you know the record player was in the den it wasn't right. in my room right. so it was like a shared space i realized i was able to go in there and play kind of whatever i wanted and he would it, without waking him up so 
believe it or not, I, I've listened to all six sides of Half Japanese's <laughs> box set, the Half Gentleman Not Bees with him sleeping there. <laughs> yes. you know, and the Sex Pistols and you know, all kinds of stuff that would you know usually wake the dead. But, uh, but I can't imagine you were listening to it too loudly. I wasn't blasting it, but I was listening to it at at a comfortable like, level. Yeah, you could hear it. Yeah, uh, it wasn't super low or anything. It was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and how old were you when you were listening to Half Japanese? And... No, thirteen, fourteen. 15. How did how did how did uh, you find that stuff? I read about it. In what, like a Cream magazine? Yeah, Half Japanese. I read about it in Cream. Um. You know, I had a cousin who gave me this book called 1988 by oh. Caroline Kuhn, which is all about the punk, uh, the original punk scene. She had been a, like a journalist for either Enemy or Melody Maker, and so collected a lot of her articles and like amazing photographs of yeah. like, both the New York and the London punk scenes. It was the sort of thing that was like, I don't remember reading it so much, but it was, I think it was mostly just looking at the photographs and just being like, it was almost, I, I think I was about 10 years old when I got in, which is right when the Sex Pistols were, I mean, they had kind of broken up by, the, by that point, but it was still when they were kind of in the news. And yeah. Kind of a big thing. And it was like, for as a 10-year-old, it was it was almost too much. It's scary. Yeah, because it was, you know, they, they all looked like criminals. <laughs> right. I mean, even the name is kind of scary at yeah. 10 years old. Yeah, I mean, sort of. I mean, that, that part of it is show business to some extent. But, right. But it's, yeah, but yeah. I mean, at that but age, did you, it's still a little harder to put. The interest came first in the music, or the book prompted the interest in hearing what it sounded like? Even the interest in the, you know, this is kind of coincided when I became interested in rock music to begin with. So it was sort of like I had to, I, th- I had to kind of assimilate more rock music before I was ready. Mm hmm. For that, like I had to kind of work my way through the Beatles, <laughs> the Stones, and Led Zeppelin before I could really. And you had done to... that by ten? No, I hadn't. Right, I, right. You know, I was still. It was still like a couple of years before I could do that. And then you know, the Clash were on the radio with London Calling, so that was that was kind of the next step. And then it became, you know, kind of following it. Yeah. Through backtracking from from there. And you could hear all that stuff on the radio. No, I mean it was still, it was still, you know. I think, I think by seventh grade, maybe friends had the Sex Pistols, yeah, record. So, and was this coinciding this listening uh, with your own approach, like picking up the guitar? And... Yeah, I'd already start. I started playing guitar, uh, kind of when I was ten and a half, I mm-hmm. guess. So, yeah, roughly six six or eight months after I really started listening to rock yeah. music kind of full-time. Do... Did you start on electric or acoustic guitar? Acoustic, classical. Yeah, uh, nylon string. Not, yeah, not playing classical, but, but nylon string. Nylon string, yeah. 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 Was, I, I remember when I first got interested in, in music, and specifically sort of aggressive rock music, and I asked my mom for a guitar at age 11. She bought me an acoustic guitar, which when I opened it was like the most disappointing, like one of my most disappointing <laughs> unboxings ever, because I did not feel like I could relate to the music through an acoustic guitar. Yeah, that wasn't so much of a problem for me, because... I had such a, I had such a nebulous concept of guitar to begin with. Like, yeah. 
I mean, growing up, guitar was something that like Roy, what was, what was his name? Roy uh, Clark. Was that the country guy who was on Hee Haw? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was like, you know, that, right. that's what I kind of associate guitar with. And, um, you know, one of the things that prompted me to to uh, get a guitar was a picture of Paul McCartney playing an acoustic uh-huh. in uh, Wings Over America, the gatefold sleeve. Right. So it's I had I had more of a concept of the, like even the the difference between acoustic and electric guitar I think wasn't all that clear t- to me I think it was I mean it was I mean I understood what it was but it's it's still like for my ear it's like I think I still didn't really completely get it and um and I think it was fortunate and like you know even the concept of bending strings you know I remember when my teacher right. showed me bending strings I was just like Wow, that would never have occurred to me in a million years. <laughs> <laughs> so, and like, I really didn't know which end you blew into when I got a guitar. Like, tuning it was like, I was like, what? It's just a huge like, mystery. Yeah. Like, I just had no, absolutely no concept of it. And I, I also think it was fortunate that I started on nylon string because even now I find playing steel string acoustic to be like a lot harder. Like the, wait, on my fingers, like the action and the yeah action and just it's just a lot harder on my fingers. So I think I would have been even more discouraged than I was initially. Right, with a, a you were discouraged stick. initially. Yeah, because it was taking me forever to learn to like switch between chords. After two weeks, I was still I was still no. I felt but, like I was no closer to having mastered Band on the Run than I was when I <laughs> started, and I kind of said something about my mom like i was like i don't know about this like i don't know if it's such a good idea and she's like well it's only been two weeks like give it another two weeks and if you still don't want to do it then we can forget about the guitar lessons but sure enough within a couple of days i think after that like it just clicked some sort of fluidity had uh yeah it was like all of a sudden i was changing chords for that song and and it turned out i could change chords for any song yeah, like pretty quickly. It was it was weird how it was just like kind of this like very sudden kind of like um, you know just being comfortable with it all like that suddenly. But, and but then at some point did that aspect of the guitar, the aspect of there being several things that you didn't know about, uh, you know, adjusting the action, tuning the strings, uh, different aspects of sound production, did that become exciting or did it sort of continue to be frustrating? Um, I think I start once I got better at it, then I started to take more of an interest yeah. in that. And then it became like, you know, I, I realized at that point pretty quickly that a lot of the sounds I was hearing on records were made by an electric guitar somehow. <laughs> uh, and that, you know, especially feedback and things like that. It's like, you were not going to get that with an acoustic guitar. So then it was like, okay, how do I go about getting an electric and that well, was well i mean like, if you want to explore probably feedback, like, like yeah you, you're definitely gonna of, wake your dad up with that yeah that was like kind of a that became like kind of a two-year process and then eventually i got uh, a les paul for my bar mitzvah actually it was my <laughs> guitar it was my guitar teacher's les paul and yeah. he sold it to us for like a pretty decent that's a big hunk of wood price. for a 13 yeah. year old yeah but uh but uh it was great because that was it was really you know what I wanted, and we kind of looked at getting, you know, a cheaper, you know, like version of it, even like a cheaper Gibson version. Yeah. And you know, my 
father kind of had a, a good attitude where it was like, if I'm going to spend money on it, I may as well get a good one. Yeah. Like, you know, instead of having to replace it two years down the line with something better, it's like better to just do it right the first time. Yeah. So did uh, that was a good life lesson. And, and that's the best life lesson. I've only <laughs> learned that in the last like two years through my wife. <laughs> it's like stopping that poverty mentality, you mm-hmm. know, like basically, yeah. Um, did you, but so feedback was initially something that, that grabbed you? Uh, once, once I figured out what it was, you know, it's, you talking it was about like, like Hendrix I mean, or, well, I mean, yeah, Hendrix and Pete Townsend probably. Yeah. I mean, and also, you know, it's all too much by the Beatles, like the beginning yeah. of that. And that was all within a, probably within a six month period you know when i saw the documentary about the who the kids are all right again uh-huh. in the theater when it came out uh and you know all the stuff that he was doing with guitar was was really exciting to me and then i you know probably the same summer i heard hendrix at woodstock doing star spangled banner and uh again like in the theater neil young russ never sleeps mm-hmm. uh so you know, by the end of that summer, it was pretty clear. Like I had to get an electric guitar and yeah, and figure out. You know, I mean, those are with. really physical players. Like that, they're, they're mm-hmm. I mean, they're really sort of like bringing the guitar into their body and, and sonic. You know, yeah. it's you know, it's not just playing notes. It's it's all that kind of stuff that with distortion, where you're kind of like getting more out of the instrument than uh, is there. Yeah, kind of naturally, and it's all kind of there's kind of this whole kind of electronic interplay going on yeah i mean the it's guitar and the amp i um at some point like but again I, it took me years to under really understand what was that uh, that aspect of on it. an aesthetic level or even just like a sound production well both like yeah. how to do it i mean you know it's like i mean amps when i was Growing, growing up, I didn't have that much of a concept of pedals, so it was like the well, built-in built-in yeah. distortion on the amp, and then it's like, you, you know, it makes it it's not impossible to do feedback that way, but it's it's more difficult. You've really got to get turn it up way loud and get right up against the speaker, and so on and so forth. I mean, pedals are great. I've got a huge stack of them over there, but I mean, those th- that wasn't really the name of the game until last well, like twenty twenty five years. Yeah. I mean, there weren't these gigantic pedal boards. It's, you know, it's kind of daunting to look at like someone like Hendrix, who, you know, is some of the most intense and creative guitar playing you'll ever hear. And he's got like a, a, a Wawa pedal. Yeah, but he had, he had distortions. He had right. f- fuzz pedals too. And Townsend did also. But, um, but the information about that is not as accessible, was not as, as accessible back then as it is now. Now you can do an internet search and figure out exactly, exactly what, what, what right. Hendrix was using at, at Woodstock or what. Pete Townsend was using in 1969 and so on and so forth. But back then it was like... You were on your own figuring yeah, it out. It was a, yeah, it was And like those dudes didn't want to talk about that. They weren't like geeking out on gear. Yeah. Did, uh... Was was Lou Reed's playing part of, uh... Was that mm-hmm. in your consciousness? Yeah, that was, again, you know, the Velvet Underground I kind of discovered in the pages of the Rolling Stone record guide. And... Lou Reed was someone you would hear a little bit on the radio because of Walk on the Wild Side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess, I can't remember. I think I had read, uh, again, there was like enough stuff about the Velvet Underground I come across that finally I was curious enough to just go out and buy the first Velvet Underground record, and that's 
an example of something that I would listen to at, like every day for right. six months, I think, after I got it. And so then I had to get the other records, which were a little bit, but I was able to get those at, at actually mall record stores also on import. Yeah. So White Light, White Heat, and then the third one. Uh, and White Light, White Heat, you know, Her to Call My Name was a big influence. In fact, I think I even brought it into a music class in junior high. As I think people had to bring in yeah, some yeah, yeah. song or something, and then I brought it in as uh, the, an example of something I thought was a good song, I think. And what was, do you remember what the, uh, the response in the room was like? <sighs> Not really. Yeah. Was this period of time uh, like um, sort of solitary, or were you ex- exploring this stuff with friends, playing with people? By... Uh, by the middle of eighth grade, I think I found another guy that knew who the Velvet Underground were and yeah. liked The Clash and so on and so forth. Uh, before that, there was like a little bit of uh, trying, you know, kind of playing things for people, but but not as, but the the shared interest would have been more like The Doors or sure. something like that. So, yeah. And I was like, I was kind of playing in bands from seventh grade yeah on so you there was a social component to it yeah 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 for sure yeah and the bands were kind of garage bands. well they were playing covers yeah. and they weren't yeah. doing original material you know no you that's that's little, that's little what it is young yeah. for that but it was yeah i was playing and it would usually be kind of like kind of like you know the when i met the guy in eighth grade it was like we got a band together but then the other guitarist was super into ted nugent so <laughs> The set list would be like uh, a lot of Ted Nugent, and then coming from him, and then the Who, the Clash. I think we played a couple of Velvet Underground. You know, songs the thing with to, Ted you know, Nugent like is a very weird combination of things. Sadly, his utterly reprehensible uh, presentation of himself really overshadows the fact that he's a, he is a pretty amazing guitar player. Actually, for feedback, and yeah. For feedback guitar, he's, he's some of the stuff he does is pretty well, cool. And for tone. I mean, yeah. like, that sound is kind of like what I want to hear in like fucking dirty rock music. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this guy turned me on to Ted Nugent at that point, and I liked it up to a, up to a point. I mean, Double Live Gonzo I thought was, was pretty good. I mean, the studio records I could probably take or leave. Um, and, you, you know, he didn't, he hadn't gone into the whole crazy right, right, yeah, wing, shit. right wing shit shit by that point so it's, that it's, wasn't really an issue it's I, I feel weird saying this but like his guitar playing almost offers me a sense of hope like well may, maybe i could figure out a way to talk to this someone like that because clearly he's expressing something that like is cool musically at least Probably yeah not. it's weird that i mean jeff baxter is another one i think yeah from that generation that kind of went to this weird kind of um you know neoconservative right kind of, kind of political thing after having been this kind of long-haired like hippie <laughs> right guitar player so not quite sure what what happens there but so when you were finishing up high school did you was the idea to go to school and study music i mean there's kind of a there's kind of a, a jump there where i was still you know it's like as i got further along in high school you know i my musical taste kind of diversified quite a bit. I was starting to take jazz guitar lessons, and I would, like in the summer, I would go to this National Guitar Summer Workshop. Yeah. 
uh, and I made kind of made friends with this other guy in a neighboring town and who was kind of who was really into like uh, speed metal, but then also Wyndham Hill <laughs> and Pat Metheny and um, Queen. <laughs> it's, you know, a lot of guitar music. Yeah. So that's, and so, you know, when like Song X came out with yeah. Pat Metheny and Ornette, he was, he was actually super into that. And we were kind of both listening to that. And so it was like, it was just like kind of like a wide variety of things. And so when I got to college, I mean, at one point I thought about maybe Berkeley or, you right. know, Guitar Institute of Technology, <laughs> but I, Guitar Institute of Technology kind of went out the window pretty quickly. And even Berkeley, I was like, kind of didn't really want to, it was, that seemed like if I had been a, a little, if I'd kind of like gotten jazz guitar, if the jazz guitar spoke to me a little bit more than it did, I might've considered Berkeley more seriously, but it didn't. So then I wasn't really sure what. But did you doing there. What was the Berkeley thing? You felt like it would have been like a competitive environment, or I think I just wasn't as into like getting even deeper and deeper into right. music theory. Then I felt like I'd already kind of absorbed enough for what my purposes were H were going to be. Right. And I kind of there was still kind of like the kind of like nagging other interests that I kind of wanted to explore like when i got i mean i went to vassar college okay. and so when i got there i was kind of like there was like a you know there were like a half dozen dozen possible majors uh including film which is what i wound up okay. majoring in because then it was like well part of the reason for uh, going into film was i kind of wanted to see if you know being a film director was even remotely a possibility or a film critic or something right. like that. And and in the end, the answer was like, no, I still want to be <laughs> right. a musician right, pretty right. much or a writer, which is also what I am. But, um, uh, but at least it gave me the option of kind of exploring these, these things to a, a limited degree. And I took a couple of music or a few music courses up there. I actually took a course in harmony and Anaya Lockwood was oh wow the instructor as it turned out who I'd never heard of before but that's but yeah pretty amazing yeah she was very she was a very strict really <laughs> instructor in terms of music theory yeah what were those classes like she was really she was really hardcore and in fact I took her class for one semester and then the next semester I took uh you know kind of you know harmony part two with a different composer whose name I think was Richard Wilson and he was a like as a composer he was much less avant-garde but he was also much less strict with like the rules of I mean, harmony was the thing with lockwood sort of like um like if you show if you come back to class you know and it's clear that you haven't worked on these these studies like she was unforgiving of it or where did no, it's more like you know you're basically writing madrigals or whatever it right. is that you have to you know learn or like this basic counterpoint stuff yeah. But you really had to follow the rules pretty, pretty, um, she was really by the book. You couldn't get away with, you know, parallel fits and things like that. And, right. but meanwhile, I'm like going back to my dorm room and listening to Philip Glass music and fits, which is all parallel fits. Right. So I was, I was like, I was like, I, I there was things like a sort of at odds a, with each yeah, other. Yeah, I was sort of like, well. In hindsight, are you appreciative of, of that approach? Um, I mean, I, I found it 
I mean, especially after hearing more of Anea's work after that, I, I found it interesting that she was that she really knew her stuff, and it yeah. wasn't that she was kind of whatever she had done after learning the fundamentals. I mean, that she was still was was pretty well grounded in it. Yeah. So, were you at this time? Did had Sonny Chirac entered your uh, your consciousness? Um, I know I'd heard of him then, and maybe I just barely heard him, but yeah, I'm trying to remember when, when my first exposure to him would have been. I know reading, there was some interview with Hendrix and guitar players, like there was like some, I think kind of commemorative issue of guitar player or something where they reprinted an interview mm-hmm. and they asked him if he's heard of Sonny Chirac and he's like, uh, he's like, he, like the name rang a bell, but he, I don't think he had really heard him. And then, the interviewer said, "Like he's all over the guitar. It's not very orderly," and uh, and Hendrix says, "Oh, sounds like somebody else we know." And laughs or something <laughs> like that. <like. laughs> uh, so I was curious about Sonny Chirac because of that, and then sometimes people would mention him in the same breath as Derek Bailey, who right. uh, I kind of just barely heard at that point. I think again at the guitar workshop, someone had played the ECM music improvisation company record which might have been the first time i heard him i'd first heard of him in henry kaiser's article in guitar player which was an they had a column called essential listening yeah and kaiser was did it one month and he had you know he had derek and evan parker and hans reichel and Masayuki Takayanagi and I mean, that's all these people in there. Like Rosetta Stone shit. Yeah, and it was like a, an article that I was, I t- hadn't really paid attention to until I kind of glanced at it and saw that he had Trout Mask Replica right. and Live Dead also. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should see what the rest of this oh, cause is. Oh, you, because you were digging Beefheart? Yeah. I yeah. already liked, yeah, I already liked those records. Uh, and so that re- that article probably came out when I was in, uh, maybe I was a, junior and or either a sophomore or junior were you do, when you first heard Derek Bailey we do you um do you feel like you were prepared for it or was it like some alien music did you hear the structures um uh, so the first time I heard him would have been in the context of the ECM yeah record and so it's he's playing in a group and um you know whenever I heard stuff like that and whatever was going on with Zorn and Christian Marclay or mm-hmm. Elliot Sharp or uh, Fred Frith, I kind of related to it as noise music, the same way that half Japanese right. is noise music or um, whatever else, but more from the rock mm-hmm. direction. So it's in terms of figuring out what was going on, I wasn't, I, 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 I wasn't really analyzing it, and. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, I had actually heard Cecil Taylor much earlier because the library had a record. And there was, again, there was like one issue of Musician magazine uh-huh. that I had that The Clash were <laughs> in. But then also there was like this long interview with uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson. And he's talking about or- and he's talking about Ornette and Cecil and mm-hmm. Albert Adler and, and all these people. So... Um, I mean, it, it kind of sounds like like your entire uh, uh, young life, music press has been really important to you. What 
the music press has been really important to you. Yeah. I, I mean, and yeah, I, it, and, and because of the way magazines were edited in those days, they were trying to appeal to the widest readership possible. And of course, people who were writing for those magazines are back then anyway, I think were what probably had like fairly diverse interests. So back then, Guitar Player Magazine would have, you know, Night Ranger on the cover, but then Henry Kaiser talking about yeah. the stuff inside. Um, and that's something that doesn't exist now Does it, it's in, not like that in anymore. magazines. And even in the internet, I think, you know, the whole kind of idea of these algorithms that kind of like recommend things to you if you like this, it's going to, that's going to, if you like Night Ranger, they're not going to say, by the way, why don't you check out right. Hans Reichel? Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it, it just doesn't work that way. Well, yeah, and, and, but again, it's like, you also have to be kind of curious enough to kind of go beyond the, the one or two articles you buy the magazine mm-hmm. for. So it's kind of a combination of things. Yeah, I mean, I have pretty specific memories of that. You know, yeah. I feel like my upbringing, just you know, fairly suburban, which was I'd buy a guitar player, buy Guitar World, and yeah, you would you know you'd buy it for whatever reason, whatever tabs were in there that you were curious about. But then you would see like, who's that strange looking guy? Right. And you would just end up reading the article, and right. maybe that would lead to something. Where um, yeah. people, people like you know, I'm not a fan necessarily of the music of Carlos Santana. But mm-hmm. having someone in that position who is this, you know, sells millions of records, who also champions like kind of far out musicians. Yeah, yeah. Santana, I love. I mean, I think I've only listened. I, I mean, I listened to Abraxas. I think that was the only right record of him that I listened to. But and then yeah, but I mean, he talks about Coltrane and Miles and yeah, so on and so forth. So and that was sort of also a big um, breakthrough was kind of discovering the modal Coltrane stuff kind of later in high school and um then realizing that so much of this this kind of jamming stuff i liked in rock was was influenced by that and is sort of like coming out of like the allman brothers and the doors and so on and so forth and then starting to approach my guitar teacher about it and um and saying like what else is like that and then he pulled out music for 18 musicians i mean steve reich and being like i've only listened to this once but it's it's kind of in the same ballpark. And then listening to that, I was just like, that was like, oh, so this is sort of like, again, this is something I kind of relate to from listening to rock music and what's going on harmonically and repetition, but it's coming from, it's also kind of like coming out of classical music in a different way that, I mean, some rock music is coming out of classical too, but it's not like prog rock. Right. You know, it's kind of a whole other thing. Uh, and then you, then it becomes, in researching that more, it's like Steve Reich, Terry Riley, Philip Glass, Lamont Young. There's a million places you can go. It's all- Terry Riley is a big influence on Henry Kaiser, who's right. like, I've already kind of like checked out the It's a Wonderful Life record right. by, so then it's like, okay. And then Lamont Young worked with John Cale and the Velvet Underground, so then it's like, oh, okay. So then it's all... Starts the all yeah, starts yeah. to become much more interconnected, but and like, then I'm kind of on like okay, so this is actually the the kind of area that I want to kind of investigate, and this is where I can kind of see myself fitting into because as much as I you know liked Van Halen and so on and so forth, it was like I couldn't really imagine 
being the next Eddie Van Halen or being like a shredder. Yeah, really. As a but I mean, but how much of this period of time when you're looking at these things, you know, and where the, where and how they relate to one another? I mean, do, were you de- like in a, the aesthetic development that was happening? Do you look at something like Van Halen and be like, well, this music is you know, it's about girls, and yeah, he's just like shredding guitar player, and the drummer's amazing, but you know, the intellectually, it's kind of limited. I mean, was that was that a part of it as well? Um, maybe because I, you know, I was listening to the Velvet Underground and things where lyrically, which, which were much more sophisticated, but I wasn't an aspiring lyricist per se. So it's like debatable as to how much, you know, that would sort of, uh, turn me off. I think in the case of Van Halen, you know, I kind of got into Alan Holdsworth as a result of liking Van Halen and again, Guitar Player Magazine. I think one of the guys in another band I was in in high school was, was uh, into Van Halen, but but he also was like really into Alan Holdsworth, uh, and again, like Alan Holdsworth also becomes this kind of like gateway between that and Derek Bailey, mm-hmm. because Alan Holdsworth is someone who's like like kind of developed this very kind of uh, unique and and personal approach to the guitar to the point where you can't really. To, to the extent that you can figure out what he's doing, if you if you you can't really use it for any other reason and without sounding like him, so yeah. you end up just like copying him or kind of you sound like an imitator, right? Uh, and and it's and it's, that's maybe a little less true of Derek because he can Derek can be a little more of an inspiration, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it is true in that if you really analyze what Derek is doing and start to do stuff, you end up just sounding like him mm-hmm. uh i mean and, and derek is sort of much further i mean to to the to, he's much more abstract i mean than alan I, holdsworth I, but it's it's another thing where it's but at the, to me alan holdsworth sort of prepared me in a way for derek as far as someone that was like you know take taking the guitar even for you know it's like even, even further direction of like the possibilities that are there that are that one guy kind of unlocked it where everybody else is still just sticking to like the normal scales and the normal chord inversions and right. so on and so forth. Derek Bailey, um, for me is particularly important, uh, for the sort of philosophical approach to what improvisation and group mm-hmm. improvisation is and can be. Uh, and certainly the time that I've spent and continue to spend with his music and with, the book that I've read, you know, yeah. multiple times now, yeah. um, sort of set like a moral code for me of, you know, being responsible to, you know, an, an improvisation that is truly about improvisation. Yeah. And I mean, and actually when improvisation started to come into focus for me was doing, you know, again, this like guitar summer workshop, Henry Kaiser did a week long, uh, seminar there. And um, I was sort of, and that was after my freshman year in college. And I probably, by that point, I was kind of not really thinking in terms of going back to the to the workshop again. But then when I saw he was teaching the seminar, I was like, well, I got to go. Right. Uh, and he was playing Derek's solo guitar record notes mm-hmm. and kind of explaining how Derek, what Derek's thought process was in terms of, 
putting one phrase after another. And then I kind of realized this is the same thing that I liked about constructing a guitar solo over chord changes, except there's no chord changes and there's no, and he's kind of combining clusters and single notes and, you know, the behind the bridge or behind the nut stuff. So it's all this whole kind of like what kind of expanded field Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what to draw from on the guitar in terms of solo playing, but also the, the idea that it was all kind of coming to him in the moment and it wasn't like, uh, something where there was any premeditated thing was like was pretty exciting i mean yeah. it's something i kind of i always kind of didn't like the idea of either having to do the same thing over and over again it's like or play the song the same way or play a solo the same way over and over again i kind of liked kind of doing a different solo every time over right in the same song and kind of having really come off the top of my head. I mean, that's sort of the basis of yeah. a lot of jazz music is yeah, improvising exactly. over the changes yeah, exactly. and pushing that's each other. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I like. But uh, in jazz, like trying to figure out what key you're in at any given time with, you know, <laughs> it's like, a the, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, and that was something that I was having difficulty with. So that first when I discovered the modal approach, I was like, okay, so then we've got the, the kind of, uh, improvisational aspect which i like and uh you know kind of a little more harmonic variety than you would get in you know blues based rock music which i also liked and then then that in turn leads you to free improvisation where then you've got all this other kind of um idea of extended technique and that in a way goes back to the the feedback and all this kind of stuff that was also coming out of rock music what is i mean when so you're hearing you know music for 18 musicians and and you're all this stuff's kind of you're seeing this world open up what did um do you remember sort of like what your sense of duration how that was changing uh duration in terms of of... uh to go from the world of like van halen where songs are you know two and a half to four minutes long to now dealing with pieces that are 20 minutes long 30 minutes 40 minutes yeah well yeah i mean that's you know the whole idea of like uh, th- again, that was like kind of a gradual thing where, uh, you know, when I was a kid, it was hard for me to imagine like listening to like uh, a side long, you know, I kind of read about Miles Davis records where it was all like side long pieces. And I was just like, whoa, that's like, that seems like a kind of a long haul. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, again, it was like a gradual thing where the Velvet Underground had Sister Ray, which is 17 minutes. So it was like, okay, once you kind of digest that, then. You can move on to sidelong, yeah, jazz stuff, and um, and then like the Henry Kaiser, the the title track, "It's a Wonderful Life," was like this sidelong, yeah, guitar solo guitar thing where he's using delay pedals and all this kind of stuff. So, and then discrete music by Brian Eno was like that was another thing that I was into. I think kind of at the end of high school. Mm-hmm. So, and then again, that's like a half hour long side long piece and 18 musicians is 50 minutes so but i'd also liked classical music before any of this when i was a little kid because those are the records that my Mm -hmm. parents had lying around so in a way i was i was sort of used to longer um duration things you know so by the time you finished up um at vassar Mm -hmm. what was the idea well by the time i finished up 
<coughs> excuse me, at Vassar, <coughs> I was already on a couple of records. Uh, Love Child, which is the band that kind of came together at Vassar mm-hmm. with some of my classmates, um, had already put out a single and recorded <coughs> a record which came out in like a year or so afterwards. And I was on this compilation record with like a solo, kind of noisy solo guitar thing. And I'd already recorded, you know, on this Rudolph Gray record with Rashid Ali and uh, Jim Sauter. Whoa. Which was like, was Mask of Light, that record, which is just one track on that record. Wait, what was the group? <clears throat> it was Jim Sauter from Barbado Megas. Yeah. Rashid Ali, the great. Yeah. Uh, it was a trio? Uh, Rudolph Gray, who, okay. was the, who was the leader, who yeah. was the guitarist, and then me. Um, so, you know, I was kind of already off and running. Yeah. Uh, so, and, you know, and I had already kind of uh, interviewed, done this article about Lamont Young, or the, kind of the history of his groups. For, you interviewed Forced, Lamont? Yeah, for Forced Exposure magazine. So I interviewed Lamont and Terry Riley and John Hassel. And um, John Cale wouldn't do an interview because he said he was writing his own article about that period, which, of course, never <laughs> materialized. And Tony Conrad uh, was a little resistant to talking about it because that was kind of the beginning of his kind of feud right? Lamont. But then I interviewed him about his own stuff a little bit after that, and it was just kind of like... Uh, this is a little bit of a long story, but it, it, it was something I did with... Um, Neil Strauss, mm-hmm. who was a writer who who wrote for the Times for a while in Rolling Stone, but much later he kind of did this book called The Game, which was the you know, sleazy pickup book. Yeah, exactly. Okay, <laughs> but this but he went to Vassar for a year or two, and so I got to know him there. And he was really into experimental music. He was writing for Ear Magazine, right? And so at this point, he was writing for Option, and and we decided to do an article about. Minimum kind of list is like very late '89. It was like, uh, kind of like it was about Tony Conrad, Charlemagne Palestine, Glenn Branca, and Phil Niblock. Kind of like grouping All the them cats. together as yeah. minimalists, kind of like this, kind of like people who are like beyond the big four who are kind of just starting to do stuff again because mm-hmm. that was. The beginning of early minimalism this for is Tony. This is 1990s? Well, like, eight, like late 1989. Okay. So we're really a little bit ahead of the curve because Phil and Glenn were putting records out, but Tony and Charlemagne really weren't. Uh, Charlemagne was supposed to have this record come out, I think, on New Albion, and then it didn't come out. And Tony was just starting to do the early minimalism mm-hmm. stuff. And Neil had seen him do early minimalism at Ars Electronica, which was kind of one of the impetus part of the impetus for doing this article. So I interviewed Tony and Charlemagne. Um, Charlemagne kind of, you can see the, the transcript of it online, I think, somewhere. But uh, all I got out was like, so what music are you doing now? And then it just in, turned into a rant about, uh, you know, against kind of the commercialization of minimalism. And then he just, he never really answered the question, just hung sure. up on me. <laughs> Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So I've gone since then. We've we've had a a, a better relationship, right. but that was a, that was kind of a a rough uh, introduction. But Tony was much, you know. And actually, Blank Forms published this magazine where um, the full transcript of 
the interview I did with Tony back then. Yeah. Came out, and, and he's talking about kind of um, his history in music kind of post working with Lamont and John Cale in the, the 60s, which wasn't really known at that point at all. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, none of these different archival things had come out at that point. It was really, it was really kind of like kind of out of nowhere that someone was some guy in college is is calling him up and asking him about all this stuff and he was willing to talk he was yeah he was he was pretty generous with his time yeah he was pretty enthusiastic about talking about his own stuff like he really i mean if if you see the interview there there's a little bit of talking about the theater return of music and he's he's um uh he's he's pretty harsh <laughs> i mean about I, I only uh, had a couple interactions with tony but it seems like day to day you might get a uh, uh, a different cat <laughs> May, i maybe kind of but it depends it depends what kind of context you were sure encountering him, so. but what was your uh was this the some of the first writing that you had done yeah and what what, sure. what was the impetus for that um well i mean from reading all these magazines and right. the the corollary is like well i could probably if, if i'm reading all these magazines i could probably write for them too i mean that was another thing that was like you know again i didn't want to be the guy that was like sitting there listening to the trying to think of something intelligent to say about the new springsteen right album you know and uh so i was like i wanted it's like it was all different ways of engaging with music. So mm-hmm. to some, it's like, you know, like playing with Lamont Young wasn't going to be an option, I didn't think. But interviewing him could be interesting. So that was like another way to approach it. There were like certain people I thought like uh, could be cool to play with this person and then other people was sort of like, oh, it could be cool to talk to them about right. their history or you know, did um, magazine. did you ever feel the need or to sort of ensure that they knew they were talking to a musician? Did you did you feel like you were encountering any sort of standoffishness uh, from the perspective of hey, I'm a music writer, um, let's talk? Um, I th- part of it was, I mean, at that point, you know, again, I'm still like pretty young. I'm like mm-hmm. 19, 20, 21 years old. So I think for its, and most of the people I was approaching were like considerably older. Right. So, and especially in the case of the people I just mentioned, I think they're, they're probably, they're, you know, they're probably, their interviews are few and far between anyway. And the fact that someone that young is interested in, right. you know, some fairly obscure part of their history, I think was sort of enough for them to be fairly, uh, you know, uh, accommodating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was probably a while after that before I really started interviewing people again because I was really more, you know, I was concentrating on being in indie rock bands and also doing wow. improv stuff with, with Rudolph mm-hmm. Gray and Lauren Maskane Connors. and uh, You met Lauren who, pretty early on? Yeah, Probably a little bit around the same time, probably early '90s, because he was on that same compilation record mm-hmm. that I was on. That was, you know, one of my first um, kind of releases. Had you an awareness of him prior to meeting him? Uh, only slightly from from I think from seeing some reviews and uh, forced exposure. Yeah, yeah, record, yeah, yeah. record reviews. I mean, he's um, he's a pretty big figure. 
Yeah, in yeah, in some circles. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I'm, I'm talking specifically about those circles. Yeah, yeah I yeah. mean, uh, or he became. Yeah, he be, he kind of became one as the '90s right went along. I think that's kind of when people really started discovering him. Yeah, more so than the '80s, where where I think he was still sort of, you know, he. I mean, I think he didn't really move to New York. I think until kind of the late '80s, so he was still in New Haven. Yeah, up until then, and and maybe I don't know even how much he came down to New York to to play. Yeah, in the '80s. And did you guys start playing together immediately? Uh, Upon meeting, pretty soon after, I think I went to see him play probably in '90 or '91, kind of, and kind of introduced myself and were like, was like, hey, we're on the same record, right? You know, which I mean. Again, like probably not that many people would come up to him after a gig and say that because he wasn't on that many mm-hmm. compilation records at that point or whatever. And then it was maybe a couple of years after that that um, we, we the first gig was at Downtown Music Gallery, and then sort of went from there. That was the first gig mm-hmm. on East Fifth Street. Yes. Yeah. Precisely. Um, do you remember the first time you saw Derek Bailey live? Yeah, it would have been around. The same time, I think, first maybe the first time was him and Paul Motion. Ooh, yeah. Where was that? <laughs> At the New Music Cafe, which was only did shows for a very brief period of time around that time, and it's like right at uh, Canal Street near Sixth Avenue, kind of right near right. The, the Holland Tunnel. Yeah. Entrance, and I think it was still called the New Music Cafe for a while, but they kind of. I think they only, it was really only a few months where they were kind of booking things. But when they did, I mean, I, that's the first place I saw Hino. Really? Also, yeah, it was Hino and, and uh, I from the Boredoms. That's insane. Yeah. This was an actual cafe? It was, well. I mean, were people I mean, eating called, and drinking while I? <laughs> they were drinking for sure, but yeah. I don't know about, I mean, they called cafe, but I don't, I don't remember how much, what they served in terms of food, if they really served food or if it was just Right, it was just an whatever, but uh, but yeah, and it was, and I went with um, Thurston Moore and another kind of mutual f- friend of ours, and we were taught, and we we actually through Rudolph Gray, we knew that Derek had played on these records by Basil Kirchin. Uh huh. Those records are crazy. Yeah, and Rudolph had turned me on to Basil Kirchin, and uh, or probably me and Thurston. And uh, after the gig, we were like, "Oh, should we go up and ask ask him about Basil Kirchin?" And we're like, yeah, why not? And then we went up to him, and we were like, hey, um, and we kind of mentioned Basil Kirchin. And Derek's eyebrow went up, and he was like, Basil Kirchin, what a great name to bring up. I haven't thought about him in 20 years. Whoa. And uh, he talked a little bit about playing with him, and we were like, do you know what he's doing now? He's like, absolutely no idea. Like, like literally haven't. Right. Like, literally, like, hadn't thought about him or really had anyone mention him to me and you know, like people close to two decades still don't really mention Basil Kirchin. Yeah, not so much. I, I mean, mean, maybe ten years ago, some reissues came out. Exactly, there yeah. was some talk then, but yeah, and then he died. And I mean, I I interviewed him really for the Wire. Yeah, I think when one of those issues came out, it was really funny. I had I was in Europe for some other reason to play. I think with Aki Onda, and I was in um, maybe we had a gig in London, but. I was in London for some reason, but it was sort of like I was kind of en route to meeting up with Aki to play in, I think, Brussels, maybe, or Belgium somewhere. It, was, it must have been Brussels. It was the first gig. 
And I remember that um, I was still carrying all my, I, or, you know, I was playing, I still had my pedals in like a bag. But I haven't, anyway, I have this memory of kind of like carrying both like my luggage and like pedals in both arms. And, and I was just like, this is it. I have to get something on wheels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I've kind of outgrown like being able to like, actually physically carry because I remember getting to this hotel where I was supposed to be doing the interview and just being totally exhausted from carrying this stuff around but anyway I showed up at the hotel and this guy Johnny Trunk from Trunk Records which had was doing those reissues was there and he was like bad news like Basil is sick he couldn't he couldn't come down from Hall to do the interview but we can do it on the phone okay I was like all right and I did it on this this house phone at the hotel, which was like a phone from, uh, I mean, it was like rotary dial, but looked like it was from the 30s, <laughs> something like crazy, like black, you know, like right. ancient phones. I'm talking to them and I'm kind of copying down notes and everything, so I don't have a recording of the interview. But uh, the one thing that was cool about talking to him on that interview was like on that record Quantum he's there's like an unnamed electric guitarist and i was like well who was that and he was like oh it was this it was a guy in hall and uh i think later he played with david bowie and i was like somehow i knew that mick ronson was from hall and i was like mick ronson he's like yeah jesus that was him and i was just like wow (laughs) yeah that's insane because nobody knew that and even even johnny the guy who put the record out like i guess for whatever reason he never asked him like who it was but he was just like wow (laughs) (laughs) so that was like a real revelation yeah and i remember on the 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 flight to from london to brussels was actually memorable just as an aside because it was like me and the seemingly the rest of the flight was all like football fans because some you know some british soccer team was was playing a in Belgium, so they were all on this flight to go to the game, and uh, you know, it was like uh, as soon as they announced that they were landing, some guy behind me was like, "Landing? We just fucking took off!" <laughs> <laughs> and then they kind of went into this whole like football chant, like whatever the team song was. So it's like the whole <laughs> whole plane is like chanting this song, except for like me and two other people and i was just like wow what the like, fuck? <laughs> yeah exactly what the fuck uh, but so around this time story. uh end of the 80s into the early 90s did you start gigging with pretty good frequency around new york yeah yeah love child um would play pretty frequently and then did a couple of did a, a long u.s tour and did a long european tour european tour was with the band codeine mm-hmm uh, and then we broke up after that, but then I got into run on with Rick Brown and Sue Garner and, um, and that band lasted for four or five years. We were on Matador and we did a lot of tours, but that band also kind of like Rick, you know, he had kind of like one foot in the indie rock r- world and one foot in the experimental music yeah. world. Cause he was running, uh, Rift Records for Fred Frith after Fred left. New York. Uh-huh. So Run On would kind of play uh, Victoriaville and um, Music Action in uh, uh, 
and Duvra on one hand, and then be also be playing CBGBs and uh, that's a that's great. Know, yeah, yeah. Which was it was really cool and playing with Eugene Chadbourne and right and Fred and people like that, but then also you know guided by voices and Yellow Tango and all this. I mean, thing. everything so you're mentioning, of, this is all like really yeah, pretty so beautiful was, representation <clears throat> of these different worlds coming so together. So in a way, it was it was perfect for me because, I was, again, like sort of like Rick, I had one foot in one world and one foot in the other. And concurrently, you were uh, doing lots of writing for... Not lots, but here and there. Yeah. 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 Did you... Um, I, know, I know you... you um, were, were you at Tonic the entire run not the entire run but i started there in march of 2000 okay and so they opened at what 98, 98 I, think. I think so first two years was uh, chris Cresano was my predecessor there as kind of like uh, kind of a full-time um kind of assistant to to john and melissa Cresano's got some pretty funny stories <laughs> that i'll bet i'll bet uh and so i heard he was leaving through David Newgarden, I think, and uh-huh. then kind of proposed myself as a possible. I already knew John and Melissa from having played there a few times, and then David Newgarden was sort of the a conduit also because David was in Run On actually, really early on, yeah, for the first year or two. Anyway, is, is, he, is he still around? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. He's managing people. I mean, he manages Guided by Voices and right. and Yoko Ono and okay so on and so forth, but um. Uh, so yeah, and he was kind of the connection there. So that's yeah. how I, that's how I kind of started, started working there. And, um, I mean, at that point, what, what, what was, what was, what was that early time at Tonic like for you? Like 2000? Uh, it was, in a way that was a kind of, that was kind of the transition between, you know, bef- in the nineties, my day job was working at a film distributor called Back then it was called Kino International, and now it's called Kino Lorber. Yeah. So Kino Lorber does tons of stuff now, actually much more than Kino International did, or at least yeah, kind of, it kind of greatly expanded. They're huge, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and like I said, I had majored in film at college, so that was kind of what, that kind of, what the job that it actually prepared me for was not working on films, but working for a film distribution company. Because uh, I also kind of ran or co-ran the Campus Film Society when I was still at college, so then it became <clears throat> like anybody, like having a day job that kind of had nothing to do with music, was cool in one way, and then but at the same time you're kind of, again you're kind of like in two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving over to Tonic, at least even if I was had a day job, at least it was still. Uh, being involved in music and of course working there I met everybody like right. anybody I didn't already know <clears throat> from from being a musician like I would kind of I met them as as a result of working there and you so, were responsible for the bookings right yeah I mean Melissa was still doing some of it but but especially as as time went on I was doing kind of the lion's share that seems really daunting yeah it seems like it could be really daunting yeah at times it was I mean you know some some parts of it were more daunting than others and some certain like times of the year were harder to book than uh than others and also it's yeah we were doing it 
seven, seven days a week. Seven days a week, and then what, like two to five shows a night between upstairs and downstairs? Yeah, downstairs I didn't have to worry okay. about. Downstairs kind of took care of itself. But there was a lot of nights upstairs where I think there was like three sets a night. Well, if there was a midnight show, yeah. 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 But that was also like, you know, I don't know if this is interesting to talk about or not, but there's certainly a shortage of places right now that had like all these different bases covered of several different kinds of music happening in the same space with like a really nice built-in social component to it where there was, you know, mm-hmm. you could have a drink, you could hang out, you could talk. And like, I think we're kind of missing that quite a lot right now. Yeah, because it's it, it was difficult to make it work. And of course, in the end, you know, it, it became... What it... Yeah. I yeah. Mean, in the end, it, it couldn't work. Uh, I mean, because of, I mean, various factors, but um, the reason you don't see that now is because it's it's sort of like... It's not viable? It's not a viable model. You know, I mean, the, the, the places that make it work now are non-profit, and then Tonic, you know, never became a non-profit. But the places that make it work now, that... They're they're missing the thing that I'm talking. That's about. what I'm yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's a nonprofit, and it doesn't the, the way to make you know some place that really kind of caters to experimental music work is by being a nonprofit and right. not trying to do it seven days a week. I mean, even with kind of like having like rock shows in there, you know, part of the the problem with that was that even if you get like a a rock. Uh, act that sells the place out with a 200 capacity the problem is that the next time the booking agent is like okay then next time in new york we can go to someplace that's 300 capacity right so you're sort of always a stepping stone uh not always because people didn't necessarily in in some cases uh, there there were some bands that would sell out tonic then go to a different place and not like it and tell the booking agent we want to go back to Tonic even if it means doing two sets in one night or whatever it is to, you know, kind of make up, you know, to kind of draw as many people as possible. So not always, but it's, you ran the risk of that more than you would uh, with the people, experimental music that would draw better. They weren't, you know, there was kind of less competition. I mean, I remember, you know, I went to Tonic a thousand times while it was open. Um, there were plenty of shows where, you know, it was me and four other people. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, you know, most of the, they were, those were like, you know, kind of like uh, uh, money losing shows. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> did, uh, did you, and that part of it was, I mean, in a way that what was most interesting to me was, was actually looking at the box office reports. Right. You know, the next day is just to see how, how well a show would do. And the, the one theory I came up with, which which actually became uh, kind of a, a rule because it was it was became like so uh, like kind of like there was it just became proven over and over was whenever somebody approached me about playing there and went out of their way to tell me how many people were going to come to their show, <laughs> I would literally split it in half, and that's what the the actual turnout would be. So if someone said. I can guarantee you, you know, it's going to be like a hundred people there. Like virtually every time, it was fifty, <laughs> which is still not a bad. Which turnout. is not, which is okay, tonic. especially yeah. you know for a small place like that is fine. Um, and in fact, there was one time somebody uh, 
said, uh, he's like, I guarantee, it was like he was trying to get a Friday night, and I was like, I don't know. He's like, I guarantee 120 people. And I was kind of like, right. And then uh, kind of knowing this in mind, I was like, okay. Uh, and then um, it drew 75 people, uh-huh. which is a little bit better than uh, sure. my, you're, my, you're, my you're... rule. <laughs> and he called me up on the Monday after. He's like, oh, I'm really sorry that, you know, I th- really thought there would be going to be more people. And I was like, actually, you did a bit better than, <laughs> than I thought, <laughs> I thought you, you would. Do. And I explained the role to him. And... But did you, <laughs> uh, did you find yourself in a position... Um... Like, like that's an interesting position to be in where you're sort of like an advocate for the artists that, you know, might be doing great work but not drawing big crowds. But you're also, you know, your primary, you know, position is to make sure that the club does well. Was that tricky for you to navigate? Yeah, but I mean, you know, Melissa was very well aware of that. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, you know, I mean, they were kind of like, I mean, she had to worry about the bottom line at the same time. You know, she could never, you know, it was sort of like, there's, for the reason I said before with, like, people kind of moving on to bigger places, you, you just couldn't completely be a sellout. You couldn't all of a sudden say, all right, no more um, this or that because we're only going to book, like, right. rock acts now because you're always going to be limited by them that because there was so much more competition to begin with and you know it's like you couldn't you couldn't guarantee kind of repeat um you know bookings mm-hmm. like that and also they kind of their reputation was already as an experimental music club so it was really hard it was actually really hard to get the attention of people who could book bigger rock acts in there i mean it i mean it took there were a couple of booking agents where they they just kind of had it in their head that it was John Zorn's club, right? You know, for years after right. that, and it took me it took like a bit of kind of lobbying on our part to kind of convince them, like, no, we also do rock shows, also. Yeah, you know, even like, you know, so it, that was the other thing was like its reputation was was made in its first couple of years where there wasn't quite as much of that. Uh, so, that, and that was another kind of thing that that it had to be overcome in order to kind of um kind of kind of get bring those kind of shows in yeah i mean has it been difficult for you at all as you know as a performing musician um to also be in the position of the guy that people are submitting demos to whether it's as a writer (laughs) or as the person booking the club yeah i mean when i first started working there melissa really wanted me to to go through demos and things like that and then after a while, that just kind of went to the wayside. I mean, th- there wasn't very much that we would book based on a, a demo. Again, was the whole thing was like, you know, ha- you know, you wanted stuff that was going to bring people in. Right. So someone just submitting a demo is not necessarily going to bring people in. I mean, people who had lots of records out were still only drawing 20 people. So right. it's like... But I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm asking is, um, like, you know, I managed The Stone for... Uh, five years five six years mm-hmm. uh you know i do this you know then damn near 200 episodes of this and yeah. i still have a uh, self-consciousness that maybe people just see me as like the podcast guy or the stone guy or i'm aware of certain resentments towards me based around either you know not engaging people the way they'd like to be engaged or you know stuff like that and i i've had to sort of <clears throat> navigate that self-consciousness yeah i mean um it's funny because 
some people would uh i already had like enough records and activity behind me so that some people would realize oh it's the same guy yeah who did this or that in some cases like nels klein was somebody who was like he was like he t- who told me like He's like, I couldn't believe that you were the same guy that did all those records with Lauren. Yeah, Connor's not like in a bad way, but just sort of like, oh, it can't be the same right guy. And it was, and it was sort of like, it's like, nope, <laughs> there's only one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and yeah, I mean, it, it was something that definitely made it a little. Sometimes I would be like a little self conscious of that, but again, it's sort of like, but by the same token, some people would ask me to play with them, kind of like who might not have kind of known mm-hmm. how to connect with me otherwise or just like me or kind of heard me play there and uh, liked it or, you know, sure. whatever it was. So it kind of worked both ways. And then, you know, writing for The Wire at that point too, I was kind of doing that a lot at the same time. Yeah. So it was like, it just kind of made me, that kind of also just kind of increased my exposure. Some people, I mean, some people probably just knew me as someone who wrote, name as someone that was like one of the this guy writes for the wire the wire see if I but, get his email address yeah, yeah but um i don't know it seemed like people seem to have for the most part seem to be aware of yeah um the the different roles i mean some people you know were i think more a fan of me as a writer than a musician whether it was for their own <laughs> purposes sure. or whatever sure and, you know which is okay but um uh, or or vice versa, maybe you know, even. I mean, in your I mean, some mind, people maybe like me as a musician, and then maybe didn't like the fact that I was also writing about music too. For but right for that that could just be their own. There's you know. still like a weird relationship. Uh, yeah. You know, I just I saw something today. I saw you know a guy who was a a notable music critic for a lot of improvised music, and I, I saw some like really like kind of shitty tweet he did today about uh like complaining about you know uh the musicians that inundate him with demos and Mm -hmm. i'm like what what do you expect to happen you know like it it was it was kind of a weird approach i thought yeah and i know other i know other you know this is a problem that a lot of you know music critics have is that like when they have like uh kind of a personal relationship with musicians and then invariably they write something about the musician that the musician doesn't like and then it causes problems and then right. it's like it's kind of like well what do you expect i mean i mean when i was i was kind of careful not to do too much record reviewing kind mm-hmm. of as a when i was writing for the wire and and other places unless uh, it was someone that you know wasn't someone that i was going to be really interacting with sure. you know when i was uh, atonic or even for other reasons just because I was putting records out too so it kind of seems like yeah. poor form to be like putting records out and then kind of you know I agree weighing in on somebody else's record although you know with you know with book criticism it's like everybody that writes book reviews is an author for, for the most part you know <laughs> right. or not all of them but a lot of times right, it sure. is so it's this sort of I mean that's I think you see that a lot more in book criticism where there's there's a lot more of an ulterior motive going on a lot of times yeah. because you know the a newspaper whoever wants like uh basically they basically want a peer review of the book so that that opens up a whole kind of that's 
<laughs> thing of like, well, this is good, but you know, the the kind of the subtext is this is okay, but just wait for my book on the same subject, or it's professional jealousy. Like, why did this guy get a book contract with the big publisher and I didn't? So then it's. But did you know, so for you? Of... I mean, so a lot of the stuff you've done for the Wire has been like the invisible jukebox. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been conversations with people. Yeah, and you've published. Yeah, like what two? And the profiles were were people that were like considerably older, had more of a history. Yeah. To them, so it wasn't like it's more of a conversation. Than, yeah, yeah. But also, at the end, it was like the it's more of kind of about being a historian of this stuff. Of course, a, a journalist, because to me, a journalist is someone that's like keeping track of it as it goes along, who yeah. wants to know what's like the new wants to interview the new face on the scene or kind of keep track of you know what's hot and what's new and what's and I wasn't as interested in that as I was in like and the, that was something I kind of liked about the wire was they would put Iggy Pop on the cover because he had a new record out but then the interview would all be about the Stooges right, right? <laughs> and stuff that you didn't know about before because most every other magazine is just wants him to talk about the new record and whatever and and the wire seemed to be okay with like you can talk about the new record for two paragraphs and then the rest of it can just be the right. stuff that we're all interested in right. you know which was cool and a lot of the people who write for the wire are musicians yeah you know? uh which also was was kind of a cool thing about it and you're still you still do stuff there right a little bit i kind of didn't do stuff for a long time and then just in the last year or so like they kind of asked the one editor has kind of wanted me to kind of do more stuff for them and and then he was like would you want to talk to milford graves and i was just like yeah yeah i would definitely want to do <laughs> Love that. To talk to milford like graves. you know I, I in fact i've very rarely talked interviewed any anyone in the free jazz really world kind of despite you know especially i mean more so <clears throat> 25 years ago than now but but actually being going out to see a lot of free jazz and yeah and really you know being pretty pretty uh uh immersed in it for a while anyway uh and for whatever reason i just never interviewed any of those guys but milford was like a great you know person to interview milford. yeah i mean living legend yeah of the highest and just order. going out to his place in jamaica was like really a, a trip yeah, <laughs> I only know it through the documentary, but it looks yeah. like a very colorful no, place. It's, to... it's really pretty wild. It did um, I mean, well, I guess we'll wrap up soon. But I want to ask about. Um, I listened just this morning to this record, Currents, that you made. Oh yeah, that was like I mean, it's amazing. It's beautiful, and oh, gorgeous, nice. and I'm probably gonna listen to it again um, later on today. But it seemed like really different from a lot of stuff that you've done. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, let's uh, yeah, it's sort of a unique example of something that uh, was something I just kind of was stuff I would kind of work on at home without any real um, uh, goal of m making it a release or releasing it at all or even playing it live at all. It's just something I would fool around with yeah. at home I, with the stuff with um, a lot of the songs are kind of in this kind of modified open G tuning which i started fooling around with after i read the keith richards autobiography it's amazing yeah yeah and he talks about that tuning and a lot of times i had i had tried using kind of like the kind of standard open tunings and what i found was whenever i would start to work with them it always sounded like crosby stills and nash or something <laughs> so i was like well i don't need to 
to do this. But what he said he did was he cut off the low E string and he would only use five strings. Huh, right. And I was like, well, I don't want to cut off the low E string, but I'll just leave it tuned to E. And that actually kind of like, kind of broke it open for me because then I was doing stuff that didn't sound like all those kind of classic rock right. materials. So I wrote a few things in that tuning. And then there was this other tuning I had kind of come up with when I was doing stuff in Text of Light, the kind of group with Lee Ronaldo and Urs yeah. Krieger and all these people. And um, and I kind of started writing some stuff in that tuning. And also I had, I kind of got in this acoustic electric guitar at a certain point. This was all kind of done on that. And uh, then kind of before I knew it, I kind of had enough material for an album. I'd kind of been listening a little bit more to... Um, I'd always... I mean, I'd listened to... John Fahey and Robbie Basho kind of from 1990 mm -hmm. on and Leo Kaki a little bit also. And for whatever reason, I kind of started listening to a bit more of the kind of like solo acoustic uh, guitar stuff. And of course, there's so many of these guys that have come out like in the last 10 mm -hmm. or 15 years. Um, and I liked Michael Hedges a lot, I think, when I was a teenager and he was kind of still around that was another kind of thing from that era and uh, i kind of had never done a solo acoustic guitar record with you know kind of never thinking that i would i was really kind of um i was really much more invested in the electric guitar and really just kind of like the electric guitar better as mm -hmm. as an instrument uh but then i decided that you know maybe this was would be something interesting to do so i kind of um, developed enough material so that it would be a full record and um, and then decided to go ahead and just record it and then kind of shop it around to labels. And um, a couple of different people recommended VDSQ, which kind of specializes in uh, solo acoustic records. And I kind of tried a couple of other labels that I like, thinking it could be interesting to do it on a label that didn't specialize in that. Um, but in the end, Steve Lowenthal was the guy who runs that label, uh, was really enthusiastic. And he also kind of, I felt like he got kind of where the music was coming from, mm -hmm. uh, kind of immediately. He was like, he was like, this is like Steve Reich doing a solo acoustic record. And I was just like, yep, <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what it is. Uh, and he was, and he's very proactive about it. And, you know, we got it done pretty quickly. And yeah. he did a good job in terms of mastering the pressing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was sort of that chap chapter. Yeah. I mean, going back to something you said earlier, touring with a, <clears throat> an acoustic guitar is certainly more pleasant than touring with a big bag of pedals. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I did one kind of, uh, tour a couple of years ago uh, that kind of went up to Montreal and then kind of down through the Midwest and back through the East Coast and uh, yeah it was kind of a, it was amazing to just show up with carrying the acoustic electric and an EQ pedal oh, sounds so nice. <laughs> and uh, you know a bag of records and that, that would be that would kind of be it and um, and I hadn't even done that much touring like that as solo electric yeah player which you know i think i've done six kind of solo electric albums over the years and um yeah i hadn't even done it 
that, that was thing that was the longest that yeah. was like 10 days and i think that was the longest i'd really done as and a, solo playing a solo. is still something that that you're invested in yeah it seems to be kind of mostly what i'm doing yeah these days um and i'm kind of actually booking some west coast tour dates right now for may yeah uh for this kind of newer solo electric piece that i've done in the last year i kind of just that's kind of what i did at hollow a few weeks ago uh-huh. when uh someone else somewhere else i did it is there like a process dialed in of doing a tour and then making the record or uh it's at least playing it live and then making the record that's kind of like the the record i did on migo was called like four years mm-hmm. uh older <laughs> Because the the first actually the second side was like the first incarnation of the piece that was kind of had evolved into what it became in the studio recording on the first side, but mm-hmm. it took a, it was like a period of four years of playing it live and kind of fooling around with it that it kind of evolved to that point, and then even after the record came out, I kind of made other changes. Yeah. To it, so I played it for a couple of years. Then, even after the record came out, despite it taking like four years to kind of develop to the point where it made the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, I think we've done good. Yeah. Yeah. How long was that? It's uh, eighty-seven minutes. Oh, yeah. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming good. over. My it's, pleasure. It's been nice talking to you. Yeah. All right. That was Alan Licht. Hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, he's a good guy. I enjoyed that talk a lot. If you want to find out more about Alan Licht, go to alanlicht.tumblr.com. Lots of records, including this beautiful one that's playing behind me, Duo with uh, Lauren Connors. Good shit. alanlicht.tumblr.com. Go to the 5049 website. Go to the Patreon. Go to iTunes. Rate and review it, please. All that stuff helps, and I appreciate it. We'll be back next week with the 200th episode of the 5049 Podcast. 200 episodes. Just think of it. All right. uh, Hope you guys are all cool. Talk to you next week.